morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you. Do uh, grab that passage in, uh, in Romans 1, have that open. Uh, that's going to be really helpful. And uh, let's pray, um, shall we as, we, uh, as we come and have a look at it. Um, Father, we've been singing uh, together of your gospel of, um, your gospel of grace, your gospel of mercy, your gospel of rescue for those who are strangers to you and far away from you in our sin. Um, so please, would you show us our need of what you have freely given us in Christ, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I guess um, I guess most of us, certainly me, I can't be the only one, most of us have had the experience of feeling unwell, but being reluctant to go to the doctors. It's not just me, is it? Um, maybe you've got a cough and it hasn't cleared up, or maybe you've got a pain and it won't go away, or maybe you've got an injury and it isn't getting better, or some other kind of symptom, but you think, oh, no, it'll be okay. I'll be fine. Uh, it'll clear up on its own. I don't need the doctor. Um, you a bit like that? Uh, I'm, I'm, definitely, I'm definitely a bit like that. I, I might advise someone else to go and see the doctor. Oh, you should go get that checked out. That sounds bad. <laughs> but when it comes to me... Well, I'm kind of, no, I'll be fine. It's okay. I don't need a doctor when really I probably do. Um, and that, that's the thing, isn't it? There's nothing that will keep sick people away from the doctor more than their refusal to admit that they're ill <laughs> and, and, and they're in need of him. Um, but being in denial about the state of our health, uh, it's not going to help us get better, is it? Um, and, and it's the same, I think, with the gospel. Um, maybe you've had conversations with people about your faith and you've had the response from them. Oh, I'm OK as I am. Thanks. You know, I don't need God. Things are fine for me. Um, in this series here in Romans 1 to 4, um, you, we've come, if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you, you'll, you'll know we've, we've just come to the end of the, the kind of introductory comments in the first half of chapter 1. He's laid out his credentials uh, and his authority as an apostle uh, of the Lord Jesus. He spelled out his loving concern for them, his passion for what he's called the gospel of God. Um, and he's given us a bit of a summary as to what he's going to be writing about, namely that this gospel of God um, is is the same one that's promised in in the scriptures. Um, it's centered and focused on the person of Jesus Christ, um, and it's a message for everyone because it's received in the same way by everyone, which is through faith in the Lord Jesus. And and so now, with the kind of introduction out the way. He's, he's starting the kind of the main body of the letter where he wants to lay out this gospel and, and all of its implications in all of its glorious detail. That's what he wants to do. But before he can get to that, before he can get to the good news that the gospel is for everyone, he needs to demonstrate that everyone is in need of it. In other words, he, he's like someone saying to us, actually, you're not fine as you are. You are sick. And you need a doctor. So between the opening verse of our passage here, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, between there and chapter uh, 3 and verse 20, actually, Paul lays out exactly what it is that is wrong with humanity, with, with our world and with us too. 
He's, he's spelling out the bad news that we need to understand in order to understand the good news of the gospel of God that he's, he's longing to lay out for us and, and does. And in order that none of his readers are left thinking, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I, I don't need that. Well, he targets, firstly, the Gentiles. He's, he's doing that in, in this morning's passage. In other words, the non-Jews, those, those who are not part of Israel, God's old covenant people, uh, the rest of us, if you like. And then he addresses the Jews, his old covenant people, in chapters 2 and 3. So, friend, if you're asking the question this morning, why do I need the gospel? I'm fine as I am. Uh, or if you would better like to be equipped as a Christian to handle that question from someone else, or if you would just like to see how God views the world, what he thinks about the broken state of our world and the broken state of our hearts as well, well, this passage is going to have great relevance for us. And there are, you, you see that as we read it. There are some hard words here from Paul, aren't they? He doesn't pull his punches but, you know, like a good doctor that's telling us hard truths, he's not telling us these things to harm us, but actually to help us by showing us our need of the good news of the gospel of God. So let's have a look at why we need the gospel of God. And it's because, verse 18, God is angry. Have a look. Uh, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, I don't know whether you find it hard to uh, think of God as being angry because we, we might be tempted to think, well, surely anger, that's a bad thing, isn't it? Um, doesn't Jesus tell us to love one another? So so how can a God of love be a, a God who's who's angry as well? How is that consistent well it is consistent and 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 we the reason why we may not think it is is because we might be confusing God's righteous anger with our own uh human anger see when when we get in uh, angry it's generally about losing our temper isn't it very often uh it's about losing control um we in other words we let our emotions or we let our tiredness or we let our stress or we let our our hunger <laughs> in the case of being hangry um we we let our hunger result in a kind of outburst don't we an outburst of annoyance or or rage at something or at someone um m- maybe our pride has been hurt maybe our patience has been exhausted and so we react don't we 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 kind of we lash out in in a sort of vindictive way God's anger is not like that, right? There's not a hint of spite here. He's not losing his temper. He's not lashing out against humanity. No, God's anger, his wrath, is his total revulsion, his, uh, his moral disgust at sin. In other words, God as, as holy, God as, as righteous, he hates sin. Sin, sin is abhorrent to God. He loathes sin. Sin is repulsive to a holy God. So, so for us to set God's love against his anger and say a loving God can't be an angry God is to confuse wrongful human anger with God's righteous anger. Do you, do you see? A God who looks upon sin and is not angry at it is not a loving God. He's a God who doesn't care about sin. 
And friends, the God of the Bible is a God who cares about sin. And so he's rightfully angry at it. Now, look, if we if we stop and think about it, we, we ought to understand this readily enough, didn't we? Because actually we experience this ourselves, don't we? Um, we've been over the last while, we've been watching the devastation in Ukraine, for example, at the hands of a Russian dictator. Uh, we've been watching the murder of innocent Israelis at the hands of terrorists. We've been watching the so-called collateral damage of tens of thousands of civilian Palestinians in the retaliation. We've watched as as the post office has been exposed for its appalling treatment of hundreds of sub-postmasters just to try and save its reputation. And we're right to be angry about that, aren't we? And we would expect a righteous God to be angry about it too, wouldn't we? We would expect God to care. And and so to be rightly angry at the injustice, at the the cruelty that's taking place in, in those various instances. And friends, God is angry at it because this is sinful behavior. And God, as a righteous God, has a has a settled, has a controlled anger against sin. You see, we are very inconsistent in our responses to sin, aren't we? Because if you're anything like me, we get angry at some sin, you know, the, the injustice carried out on the sub-postmasters, for example, whilst remaining unmoved by other sin, and especially the sin that's going on in our own hearts. But God is not like that. Just look at what his anger is like, verse 18. It's revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Do you see? In other words, we, we may be inconsistent. We might pick and choose the things that make us angry, but God is entirely consistent, right? He is rightfully opposed to all sin wherever it's found. So we need the gospel of God because God is rightfully angry at sin. He's right to be angry at sin. It doesn't make him less loving. It makes him more loving because it shows that he cares about sin. Sin matters to God. So let's get more specific then. Uh, Second heading. Let's find out exactly why God is angry. Verses 18 to 23. Why is God angry? We've said that he's angry at sin. But what does that mean exactly? Have a look at the end of verse 18. Um, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So so why is God angry? Well, he's angry because people, humanity, in their ungodliness and unrighteousness suppress the truth. So God's angry at our unrighteousness. That that means our our behavior towards each other. But notice also he's angry at our ungodliness, which is about our attitude to God. And, and you know, friends, it's pretty obvious, isn't it, to anyone who's looking that British society, in common with most of the Western world at the moment, is becoming increasingly godless, isn't it? I think was it Alistair Campbell, wasn't it, famously said back in uh, 2003 when when he was Tony Blair's uh, advisor and Tony Blair was questioned about his faith. Do you remember? He famously said, we don't do God. 
And, and I think in the years that have followed, that's only become increasingly the case, isn't it? Our country doesn't do God. Uh, the number of sort of nominal or cultural Christians uh, in the country, you know, those who, who might self-identify as Christians but are not, not meaningfully uh, part of a, of a local church, that number is falling fast, uh, of course, kind of census Christians, if you like. Uh, and, and many of those who still sort of self-identify in that nominal way have a very little concept of what true Christianity even is, let, let alone a personal trust in, in Christ as, as, as born-again believers. And, and we like to call this, don't we, living in an increasingly secular society. That's what we like to call it. But I think Paul would describe it as living in an increasingly godless society. And he says here that this, this unbelief, if you like, this, this leaving God out of the equation is sinful and it angers God. But what angers God is not just that people are ungodly and unrighteous, but it's that in their ungodliness and unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. In other words, there, there is a truth that God has made known to humanity, but people suppress it. And they suppress it because they are ungodly and unrighteous, and God is justifiably angry about that. So, so, so what is this truth that humanity suppresses? Well, have a look at verse uh, 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So the truth that humanity in its sinfulness suppresses is the truth about God that can be plainly seen all around us in the world. Um, you know, maybe you've been out for a walk in the countryside. We were out for a walk on the Dover yesterday. Maybe you've done something like that. Or you've, you've, something in detail, you've looked at a flower, you know, uh, uh, in the garden. Or, or you've, you've stared up at the, at the night sky and you've thought to yourself, how could all this not be the work and the design of a creator God? How could it not be? How could we possibly look at the universe that we live in and conclude that it's all a product of chance? That it's got no reason, no purpose uh, attached to it. Isn't it ridiculous to think that? Isn't, isn't there evidence of God everywhere? If, if, if we just look around us? You know, the way the, the, way the, uh, the, the solar system works in, in perfect harmony, the, the, the tides, the, 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 the seasons and so on. Or, or what about the intricate makeup of, of even a single cell? Isn't the universe crammed full of evidence for a designer, a creator, a God who, who caused all this to come into being? Now, of course, the, the atheist scientist says um, you can't prove the existence of God. As, as though God is somebody that you discover through an experiment. Um, but look around you. Look up at the sky. Where's all the evidence pointing? To random chance? Or to a designer, a creator, a God? Isn't it plain to see? Well, Paul says in verse 19, yes, 
It is plain to see. Because God has made it plain to see. You don't need to be clever. You don't need to be a scientist. God has given us the necessary faculties so that everyone can look around them and easily deduce not only God's existence, but some of his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. They can be clearly seen and understood in the things that have been made. In other words, in the created order all around us. You don't need to read the Bible to know it. Just look around you. You know, just like a picture tells you there is an artist. So looking at the universe tells you there's a creator. It's obvious. It's staring you in the face. It's clear. Do you see his point? We can't claim ignorance. No one can say, I don't know anything about God. God says, you do know about me because I have made it plain. But in your ungodliness and your unrighteousness, in your desire to live without me, you suppress that truth. You bury that truth. And you kid yourself that you are ignorant about me, but you're not. I've made it plain enough. You have no excuse. Uh, Then he goes on. Look, uh, verse 21. Um, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So he's saying, although God has has revealed something of himself in creation enough for you to worship him. You you haven't. You, You haven't honored him. You haven't glorified him as God. You haven't thanked him. But rather, instead of that, verse 23, you've exchanged the glory of God for images, right? Images of men and birds and animals and reptiles and and, and so on. In other words, you're not acknowledging God. Do you see? Instead of worshipping the creator, you're worshipping images of creation. And in doing so, you show yourself to be, verse 22, not wise, like, like you claim, but a fool, futile in your thinking, darkened in your hearts. And of course, friends, what he's talking about here is, is of, of course, is idolatry, isn't it? Instead of worshipping the creator God, they're worshipping created things. You see, uh, the, the heart of sin is the replacing of God with a, with a false substitute called an idol. It's worshipping anything that humans have made instead of worshipping the God who made humans. Now, I guess the kind of idolatry that Paul has got in mind here is is maybe not quite as common in in our sort of secular culture as it would be in some other cultures. We don't tend to worship the idols of sort of animal gods or people gods and the like. Some some do, of course. Uh, It's not so widespread in, in the West. But we do make idols, don't we, friends, of plenty of other created things instead. We, we can't say that we don't worship anything because everybody does. You know, whatever takes the first place in our lives, that's the object of our worship, isn't it? And, and that covers not just bad things, but it, it covers putting good things, too, in the place of God. 
So, you know, that can be material things, can't it? Things like our money. Plenty of people worship money and stuff in our culture. It can be our career. It can be our family. It can be our gardens. It can be our sports. It can be uh, our holidays. It can be our health. It can be our vanity. Um, you know, good things that knock God off the number one spot in our lives, such that our places of worship become shopping centers, right? The office, the, the local gym, you know, your Instagram feed, whatever it is. But it can also be spiritual things, can't it? We can make up our own image of God, our own picture of the kind of God that suits us. And then we worship that. And people think we're very spiritual as a result. But Paul says, no, that's futile and foolish thinking. And it darkens the heart. And he says this idolatry is the position of the whole of humanity before God. And can you see how that helps us with that question that Christians sometimes get asked? I don't know whether you've been asked this question. I've I've been asked it plenty of times. Um, what, What about people who have never heard the gospel? What happens to them? You've been asked that question? Or or have you ever asked that question? I think these verses help us with that, don't they? In, In seeing that God is not angry simply because of people rejecting Jesus. Right? It's not only the rejection of the gospel that brings God's condemnation. God is a righteous God, and so he won't condemn people for rejecting something they've never heard. But God is angry because the whole of humanity, whether they've heard the gospel or not, does know enough about God to acknowledge him as God and worship him as God. But we don't. We do know enough to worship him as God, but we don't. But rather instead, we worship anything but him. You know, as as, uh, Calvin famously put it, our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. We're churning them out all the time. And what all this means is, is that no one anywhere has any excuse. This is God's indictment on the whole of humanity with no exceptions. We're all sinners. We're all guilty. We're all under the wrath of God. And there are no exceptions. And friends, that's why we need this glorious gospel of God that Paul is just longing to uh, to share with us in the subsequent chapters. So we've seen that God is angry. We've seen why God is angry. Let's let's have a look now. Verses 24 to 31. How God's anger is revealed. I, 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 I don't know what um, I don't know what pictures might be conjured up in your mind about God's anger being revealed. Maybe maybe we we might naturally think about the promised future judgment to to come, you know, that time to come when when sin will be finally judged, you know, punishment will be will be given. Uh, Actually, Paul talks about that himself, of course, doesn't he? One, One Thessalonians when when he talks about God rescuing us from the wrath to come. But it's not that future wrath that God's got in mind here, because he says in verse 18 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. So this is a this is a kind of, of wrath that's being revealed in the here and now. Did, did, did you see? 
So uh, maybe that makes us think about kind of, you know, uh, thunderbolts from heaven, you know, something like that. You know, God, God intervening, in other words, to bring judgment. But it's not that either. And actually, we can see what it is by a kind of there's a recurring phrase. I don't know whether you picked it up. There's a recurring phrase that Paul uses in these next few verses. Have have a look. um, Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. See that? Uh, Or verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Or in the middle of verse 28, God gave them up. So, so what Paul's got in mind here is that God's anger is revealed now, in the here and now, by him giving humanity up to what they want. More sin. So verse 24, again, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Well, verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind. So you see, it's not that God intervenes, it's that he doesn't intervene. Right? It's like he removes his protective hand and allows us to give ourselves up to, to our, our sinful, our disordered desires. Do you see? He allows us to follow the lusts of our own hearts. He allows us to follow our dishonorable passions, our debased minds. In other words, he lets humanity go our own way. He gives us what we want. So although God has revealed himself to humanity, we have said, I don't want you as my God. I want to rule myself. I want to do it my way. And so God's judgment now, the way his wrath is revealed now, is in giving us up to what we want, which is our own sinful way. And what are the consequences of that? What are the consequences of God giving us up to what we want? Well, notice in verse 24 that when we're given over to our sinful desires, it leads to sexual impurity. There's one of the things it leads to. And notice there's a direct link here between ceasing to believe in God and sexual impurity. And that's quite simply because if we will not conform our desires to the truth, we end up conforming the truth to our desires. And this is what is happening all around us at the moment, friends, isn't it? You know, that um, the, the Bible teaches very clearly, very unambiguously, that God has given sex to humanity as a gift within the context of lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. But when our society, in its unrighteousness and ungodliness, seeks to split sex away from that God-given context, then it becomes sexual impurity. Verse 24, people dishonoring their bodies with one another rather than honoring them. But there's another consequence here, isn't there, of, of God giving us up to our own sinful way. That's verse 26. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Or I think the NIV says shameful lusts. And, and you'll notice he actually specifies what he means 
by those shameful lusts. Verse 26, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And likewise, their men gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Which is a troublesome bit of teaching, friends, isn't it, for, for our current culture to, to hear? Because this is clearly talking here, isn't it, about same gender sexual practice here. Lesbian, female relations, homosexual, male relations. And, and, and scripture is, is unequivocal here in, in its condemnation of such sexual practice as being not only unnatural desires, but specifically as being one example of the dishonorable passions, the shameful lusts that humanity is given up to when it rejects God. Now, friends, there's there's probably uh, no area of morality where the teaching of the Bible rubs up more against the current morality of of the world, certainly the Western world, than in this area of human sexuality, is there? And I think the church needs to be really careful that we don't single out uh, homosexual sin as being somehow in a worse category than heterosexual sin, because it isn't. We need to be really clear about that. Um, And so therefore we need to be really eager to proclaim that God's love is for all people, including those who would identify themselves as gay or lesbian. And that the mercy and grace of God's gospel extends to them every bit as much as it extends to everyone else in in humanity. And that therefore the church needs to be a place that welcomes them in, in the same way that we welcome all people to come and hear the good news of the gospel. And we do so, friends, recognizing that all of us here, everyone in the room, are failures in the area of sexual sin. There's none of us who have not got things, have things in our histories that we are deeply ashamed about. So there's, there's really no room for a kind of finger-wagging approach here. But at the same time, we need to keep affirming in our changing culture that All sex, whether heterosexual or homosexual, that is outside of the covenant commitment of heterosexual marriage is against God's design for it. We have to keep affirming that. But people violate God's created order in Genesis 2.24. That a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. We violate that by any kind of sex that is outside the lifelong commitment of marriage between one man and one woman. So Paul doesn't single out homosexual sin as some kind of worse sort of sin uh, uh, than than anything else, but rather as one example of of sexual immorality. And and friends, as as our society in its ungodliness, in its unrighteousness, is rapidly changing its perspective on this, and, and why wouldn't it? Because we don't expect a non-Christian culture to adopt Christian morals. And it would be wrong to try and force them on people. Nevertheless, the Christian church has no place in attempting to redefine what God's word clearly teaches or condone sexual practice that God condemns. So we, we must be clear on that. And it's not a secondary issue over which Bible-believing Christians can simply choose to disagree. 
it is a primary gospel issue. Because as Paul uh, affirms here, um, he's clearly linking such disordered desires to God's giving over of humanity to its own sinful way. So, friends, we must hate the sin, not affirm the sin, but we must love and befriend and welcome the sinner, for such are we. Um, notice in, in verse 28 as well, there's a, there's a third consequence here, isn't there, of God giving us up to our own sinful way. And that is that he gives us up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And I want to draw our attention to this because it's just possible that some of us are sitting here actually feeling quite virtuous. You know, well, I've been faithfully married for all of my life, my whole life. There's really none of this that applies to me, is there? Wrong. And, and just to make sure that we don't feel that, Paul gives us a whole load of other sins, do you see them there, which also incur God's wrath, sins that he places alongside those of sexual immorality. And he says that because humanity has not thought it worthwhile to acknowledge God, verse 28, our minds have become worthless, debased. And this has led to a whole variety of sinful behaviors. You see them listed, can't you, in in, uh, in verses 29 and uh, through to... 31, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's a great big list, isn't it? And when we start to see things like envy up there, and gossip up there and boasting up there put on the same level as sexual immorality in in terms of God's anger well suddenly some of us don't feel so virtuous do we it's it's a black picture isn't it and and Paul couldn't be clearer I don't think he could be more graphic if he tried friends God is rightfully angry he's revealed enough of himself through what we see in the world around us to every single person who has ever lived so that we all know something of God's existence, something of his attributes, and that he is to be worshipped. But in our rebellion, we bury that truth and we turn instead to the worship of anything else except him. And so God, in the here and now, judges us by giving us what we want which is our own sinful way. He gives us over to yet more sin because that is what we want. And and, and so when we look around us at the moral decay in our country, you know, the marriage breakup, the increasing violence, the sexual promiscuity, Christians often ask the question, don't they, do you think God will judge us for this? (laughs) Friends, God says this is his judgment on us. And so we shouldn't kid ourselves that we're fine as we are and we don't need the doctor. And we shouldn't think that we can claim ignorance of God as an excuse. And neither should we think that we are some kind of exception to this picture here. Friends, this is the Bible's um, damning description of how humanity stands before God. And and Paul gives it to us in, in such strong and clear terms so that we will know that there is no hope for mankind. There's no hope for you. There's no hope for me. There are no exceptions to his judgment. There's no possible way out except 
through the way that God himself has provided in the gospel of God that he's just longing to tell us about. That gospel which is promised in the scriptures, that gospel which is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, that gospel that is for everyone because everyone needs it and everyone can receive it by simply trusting in the rescue of Christ on the cross. So look, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian this morning, Paul wants you to really grab hold of the seriousness of your sin so that you can comprehend when we hit it in chapter three, the full glory of the gospel. It'll blow your mind. And so that you'll turn to him alone to save you. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, Paul wants you to really grab hold of the full seriousness of sin so that it may inform and and incentivize our, our gospel proclamation. Remember that we're all without excuse. So this is God's damning description of us as well and 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 we would likewise friends be facing the consequences of our sin were it not for the fact that someone shared the gospel of God with us so friends let's not kid ourselves about the seriousness of our sin before a holy God but neither let us assume that it's someone else's job to tell people about that and and point people to the only way of rescue Now, let's allow this sobering passage to leave us with humble thanks to God for what he's rescued us from and with a fresh determination to point others to the only way of rescue. Should we pray? Let's pray. Uh, Father, this is a really sobering passage. Um, We acknowledge that this morning, um, but we thank you that it's in your word. Um, please uh, help it to sink in so that we can feel the full weight of it. But Father, not so that we would sink into despair, but rather so that we would turn to Christ, whose work on the cross was to deal with our sin once and for all. So please may it lead us to trust him and his work, uh, either for the first time or, or afresh this morning, And and may it lead us to to grateful thanks for our own rescue, for a fresh encouragement to share with others both the reality of sin and the good news of a saviour. And we pray in the saviour's name. Amen.